I wouldn't have believed it. I not seen it. Here in Lakewood. Explain what I mean. Let me begin with a question. If I would tell you that there was an elderly man in the hospital and he's bedridden, lonely, and you could cheer him up with a three-minute phone call. Just call him up, wish him well, wish Lema. Would you do it? Sure. If you could make a person happy in three minutes, you certainly do it. I'll tell you a story about that. You probably all have heard of uh, the great Godel of Rav Pam. And uh, Rav Pam was a Kohen, so we didn't go into hospitals because too much maze. And there was an acquaintance, not a close friend, but an acquaintance who was in the hospital. So uh, he wrote him a postcard. Again, wishing him well, or for Shlema. And this man received this postcard, <coughs> and it was such an honor. Pam, the great Rosh Hashiva, the great Tamaklav, sent me a postcard. Everybody that came to visit in the hospital, he showed the postcard. Look, Pam sent me a postcard, wishing him well. And it was a big, big uh, honor for the person. Anyway, the, the man passed away, and uh, his funeral was essentially attended not by his own contemporaries. He was quite old, and his friends all passed on themselves, but uh, by his son's contemporaries. And even the Rav, who said a hesped, didn't know him well. He was the son's Rav. He didn't know the person. Maybe he met him. But at the funeral, he said that I really have to confess, I don't know the person well, but Rav Pam sent him a postcard wishing him well. So he must have been a very, very distinguished person. <coughs> so it was a great honor in his lifetime and even after his passing. So someone went to Rav Pam and told him, says, you know, that uh, this postcard that you sent was a big deal. The person really was honored, and he showed it to everybody, and even at the funeral it was spoken about. So you would think that Rav Pam would be very happy to have heard this. He was very upset, very agitated when he heard this. So the person that told him asked, why is the Rashiva upset? So he said, how long did it take me? It took me three minutes. How many spare three minutes do we all have every day? That we can make a difference. We can make someone happy, cheer a person up. <coughs> many opportunities. And therefore, when he was reminded of what you could accomplish in three minutes, and that even he felt that he didn't adequately do, he was very, very disturbed. That was the story. So you see that everybody would do it. If you knew what a difference it would make you would do it. 
So let me ask you a question, another question. If I was to tell you that in three minutes you could give nachas ruach, you could give pleasure to the ribonish loyla. <laughs> learn a pasuk of Chumash, learn a mishnah, learn a line of Gemara, do a mitzvah, say a bracha. Would you do it? Doesn't cost any money, doesn't take a lot of time. You can give tremendous satisfaction to the Rebbeinu Loyla. Not so fast. Not so fast. Why not? If you do it for a person, you wouldn't do it for the Rebbeinu Loyla. And the problem is, I think we don't really believe it. Because we don't really believe that what we do makes a difference to him. That it makes the Rebbeinu Shlalem happy, that it gives him satisfaction, it gives him nachas ruach. So that a human being could be flattered by our attention, that we understand, that we appreciate. But that we banish Lailam, it should make a difference to him. We're not so sure. We're not so sure. We're very hesitant. And that's why we don't exert that effort. And I think that in a certain sense, this is what Hanukkah really is all about. And there's a famous question that uh, the nace of Hanukkah, the nace of uh, the oil lasting eight days, was a seemingly unnecessary miracle. You know, the great miracles in Jewish history, talk about the Kriyas Yamsuk, we're talking about the survival of the Jewish people. They're facing annihilation. Para was coming from behind, the ocean is in front, and uh, if the miracle doesn't happen, the Jews are going to be slaughtered. So we understand that this is a miracle which was a very necessary miracle. This is the survival of the Jewish people. But uh, what would have happened had the miracle of Hanukkah not taken place? So in the worst scenario, they would not have done the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. That's the worst thing that would have happened. They would not have done this mitzvah. And we know that if a person is prevented from doing a mitzvah because of circumstances beyond his control, there's a rule called Aynas Rachman Apatre, that if a person is uh, constrained by uh, circumstances, he cannot change. So the Torah exempts him. So that would have been the worst thing. But many, many Achroinim say that a surprising thing, that if they would not have had pure oil, they could actually have used the impure oil. Because we have a rule, when it comes to the communal offerings, then you can dispense with the laws of Tumah and Tahara. So, in the worst possible scenario, it may have been, not that they couldn't have done the mitzvah, but they would have done the mitzvah in not the most beautiful way, not the most optimal way. They would have used, instead of pure oil, they would have used defiled oil. So for that, the Rebbeinah Shlomo made a miracle. So, uh, what does it teach us? It teaches us that the mitzvahs we do are important. And not just the mitzvah in a general sense, but even the performance of the mitzvah in the most beautiful, optimal way is important. And for that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu changed the laws of nature. Now, we know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves nature. He created the world 
in a manner that is consistent, that there are fixed laws that are almost inviolate, they always remain in force. Gravity always operates and light always travels in a straight line and there are rules and laws of nature which according to Baruch rarely, rarely changes. Only in the most dire circumstances are there miracles. But for this, to convey the message to the Jewish people that your mitzvahs are important, not only your mitzvahs are important, but the fact you do them in the most beautiful way, that is important to me. For that, according to Baruch changed the laws of nation that the oil that should have lasted one day instead lasted eight days. To convey to us a message that the mitzvahs we do are important, they are a nachas ruach, they give satisfaction to the Gilonish Leilam, they're precious to him. And the question is, of course, why did the Kodesh Baruch Hu have to convey this message just at this historical juncture? So we have to understand that the Hanukkah story takes place at a crossroads, a historical crossroads. Jews always ask the question, when terrible things happen, calamities happen, they always ask why. So when we talk about the Jews enslaved in Egypt, why did it happen? So the Gemara in the Dharam says three reasons. There are three Abeyrus that Avram Avinu did for which his great, great, great grandchildren had to be enslaved. And when we come to the decree of Haman to annihilate the Jews, the Gemara asks the question, why were the Jews really deserving of annihilation had they not done tshuva? And the Gemara gives a reason for that. And uh, the Gemara Yuma asks the question, why was the first base of Megiddo destroyed? And gives three reasons for that. And why was the second base of Megiddo destroyed? Gives a reason for that. We always look for reasons. Things don't just happen. But interestingly, the uh, Gemara never asks about the decrees that preceded the Hanukkah story, the decrees of Antiochus, that the Jews shouldn't keep Shabbos, and they shouldn't practice Rismila, and they shouldn't maintain the calendar and all the other decrees. The Gemara never asks the question, why were these decrees why were these decrees made? What, what, what sin were the Jews guilty of for which these decrees were made? The Bach, in his commentary to the tour, says something which he assumes is self-evident. He says, the Xeris of Antiochus came because there was a hisrashlus, there was a malaise in the service of the Rebbeinu Shlomo. There was a lack of passion, a lack of interest, a lack of drive. Everything was just going through the motions, lip service, ticking off the boxes. There was no passion, there was no fire, no enthusiasm. And that's why these Xeris happened. And you have to wonder, where did he get this from? Is, is there a proof? Is there evidence? There's an amazing thing. Because we have the latest books of the Nevi'im. Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi were written in the beginning of the second base of Migdash era. And in the Navi Malachi, you find an amazing thing a new critique of the Jewish people. If you go to the earlier Sfarim, like Yirmiya and Yeshaya and Yecheskel, the great criticism of the Jewish people was Avedah Zara, that Jews practiced paganism, idol worship. And that was the great criticism of the Jewish people. They weren't faithful to the Rebbe Hashem. 
And here in Malachi, you have a new critique. It says that you treated the avoda of the Beis Hamikdash with disdain. You brought animals that were defective and sick and lame and blind. You don't find this before. In the first Beis Hamikdash, there was no problem. People were spending a lot of money. They were bringing the finest. The problem was that instead of bringing it to the Rebbeinish Leilam, they were bringing it to Baal, to the Avodah Zarah. Okay, that's a terrible thing. But here we find something new that, that the Jews just—they were going through the motions. They weren't interested. There was no no passion. So it seems we have evidence. But the question is, why was it? It's a very interesting thing. There's a famous Gemara. The Gemara says that something else happened at the time of the beginning of the second Beis Hamikdash. The Anshe Knesset Hagedoyla, the members of the great Beisdin of that time, they came with the following argument. They said, you know, that when we had the first Beis Hamikdash, there was a tremendous Yetzirah, tremendous drive to do Avodah Zarah. And we know that Akarivarach only gives us the Eight Sahara, so that we should be rewarded for overcoming it. But apparently we failed. We failed, we committed Avaidazara, the Basin Nish was destroyed, a terrible thing. Let's ask the Rivanish Loilam to take away the Eight Sahara for Avaidazara. We shouldn't have this Eight Sahara anymore. And they davened, they fasted, and Akarajbarakh agreed. He sent down a note from heaven with his seal on it, which is the word emes, that's chaysamo shalakarosh baruchu, and Hashem agreed to take away the Yitzhar of Zara. Okay, so where is the Yitzhar of Zara? Where is it to be found? So the Gemara says, nafak kiguriya denura meskachayakachim. A lion made of fire came running out of the Kaidish HaKadoshim, out of the Holy of Holies. A lion made of fire. And the Navi pointed to this lion and said, that is the Yetzirah of Avodah Zarah. So they caught it in a, in a lead barrel and they sealed the lid and that was it. The Yetzirah was vanquished. But there's a question, of all places, why was this fiery lion in the Kaidish HaKadoshim? This is the Yetzirah of Avodah Zarah. <laughs> That's where it lives? In the Kaidish HaKadoshim? So... Sifra Hasidus says the following. Everything is zelu umazeh. This corresponds to its opposite. There's a balance. When there was this tremendous drive, this passion for Avodah Zarah, at the same time, there was a tremendous drive, a tremendous passion a burning desire for Baita Hashem. The Nisayan, the big challenge was, are we going to direct this passion to the Rebanish Lailam? We direct it to the Avaita Zara, and that was a big passion. Big, big challenge. But if it wouldn't have been even, if it wouldn't have been that the two alternatives were equally enjoyable, desirable, then uh, life wouldn't be a test. So, when Nakarul Baruch consented to do away with the Yitzhara of Avaydazara, the passion, the drive, 
for Avodah Hashem also disappeared. And the Navi Malachi pointed it out. That now, it wasn't that they were doing Avodah Zara. They were bringing Karbanas to the Gedonah But there was no enthusiasm. There was no excitement. It was just going through the motions. Yeah, it's good enough. The animal is lame. The animal is sick. The animal is blind. Scrawny. It's okay. It's good enough. This, by the way, is the era in which we live. Or this is what we grapple with. Is do we have this tremendous burning desire for mitzvahs, for tefillah, for... Not what it should be. Because uh, that's what happens. When you do away with the passion, the evil, you lose the passion for good. So what happened then? So, Rav Tzadok HaKayin writes an amazing thing. He said, everything became intellectual. Everything became intellectual. We no longer had Ruach HaKadosh. We no longer had the divine spirit within us. But we had uh, our minds. Intellectual. Learning, etc. What was the counterpart to that? <coughs> On the other side? <coughs> was philosophy. Because as you know, before the Hanukkah story, Alexander the Great... It was in the dissolution of his empire that uh, you had the Syrian Greek kings and the Egyptian Greek kings. But Alexander the Great was tutored by Aristotle. So well, this was, these were the beginnings of philosophy. This was the Zelul Mazel. That when our practice of Judaism became intellectualized, because the spirit was, the wind was knocked out of the sails. So the opposing side was intellectual. As I say, don't hold me to it, but my theory is that you know when uh, before Mashiach comes, everything has to be repaired. Everything that was lost has to be restored. So if what we lost, when the Kodesh Baruch took away the Yetzirah of Yitzharah, and the Guriyad Nur, the lion of fire, came running out of the Kedush HaKadoshim. So that passion, that fire, has to be restored. Because before Mashiach can come, before the ultimate Gula comes, everything has to be repaired. So that's, that was the Chidsh of the Baal Shem right, To restore that fire, to restore the Hislavos, to restore the, the feeling, the Regesh. Avodah Hashem with joy, with passion, with simcha. It's, it's not just that, that it happened, it's part of a historical process of restoration. Everything has to come back. To pave the way for the ultimate gu'ula. But this is a serious problem. That, that just at about the time of the Hanukkah story, so uh, we lost the Yitzhar of Avodah Zarah, we lost the fiery line of Avodah Hashem. Everything became intellectual. So now there's a problem that uh, we saw from the Navi Malachi that there was a malaise, there was a swashless, there was no, no interest. So what do we have to do? 
What does the Kodesh Baruch have to do? The Kodesh has to impress upon you intellectually, intellectually that these mitzvahs that he asks you to do are important. Once upon a time we felt it. Once upon a time we, we felt it inside. Our, our, our neshamas felt it. But now that our neshamas don't feel it, so we have to know it. So how is the Kodesh Baruch going to show this to us? So Kodesh Baruch is going to show that there's something which is very, very, very important to him. And nevertheless, HaKadosh Baruch was going to forgo it for the sake of something which is even more important to him. So we know that, again, as I said, that the laws of nature are very important to the Yubanishlam. He made a world that he wants to function towards the laws of nature. But HaKadosh Baruch was willing to forgo that for what purpose? To demonstrate, to show that the mitzvahs are important. And not just the mitzvahs, but doing the mitzvah in the most optimal form is important. And therefore, that's what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah comes just at the time where the spirit, the regesh, the fire has been lost, and everything becomes cerebral, everything becomes intellectual. And the Kodesh has to now get us to think that these things he asks us to do are important, and that's the message he sends with the nice of, of Hanukkah. Our job is to take that nugget of knowledge and use it to revive our spirits. And that's why I have to be honest, it's such a pleasure to be here. Because I see that uh, you're already working on that to a degree that uh, again, I don't want to say anything I shouldn't say, but to a degree that I wouldn't have expected in this part of New Jersey, let's just put it that way. <laughs> so, Kazakh uh, via Mats, it's an important thing. Yeah, you gotta go to Canada more often. <laughs> <laughs> Canada, we're frozen, we can't, we can't move. <laughs> Paralyzed. So let me just tell you a story. And uh, there are many versions of this story that are told. I heard, the version I'm gonna tell you, I heard from Rav Moshe Weinberger, I would say, Certainly, uh, more than 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. And since then, I've seen the story brought as far as I mean, it's brought in different ways, but I'll, I'll tell you the story as he said it. The, you know, the great tzaddikim were all, uh, each was famous for a different uh, aspect of the Hashem, a different mitzvah. There was one rabbi, Rabbi David of Tolna, of Tolna, if you know a little bit of Hasidish history, he was the son of the Shnobla Maggid, he was uh, a great tzaddik. He was renowned for his Avoida of Hanukkah, the luckiest neighbors of Hanukkah. And people came from far and wide to his small base medrash to uh, join in the luckiest neighbors of Hanukkah. There's one year, one particular year, the, uh, the Hasidim reported Every year it was something very special, something very, very uplifting. But there was one particular year that it was higher, loftier than any other year. This is what happened. One of the nights of Hanukkah, he came into the base Madrash. Everyone is waiting, you can imagine. The place is packed, jam-packed. The walks in, 
And he stands in front of the menorah, and he's staring, he's staring, he's staring at the menorah. He doesn't move. He's staring, staring. For what seems like uh, an eternity. Everyone is waiting, and they're just staring. And at some point, he looks up, looks around the room, and he says, Who is Shaya? Where is Shaya? There was a Yid in that place, Shaya, he was a butcher. Not a particularly learned person, not a particularly devout person, he was a person that frequented that place, And he was very, very tall. Very, very tall. So uh, he stood off to the corner, not to block anybody's view. And the Rebbe is looking, and finally he catches his eye. He's standing in the far corner. He says, Shai, says, come here. Just come here. So this, this Yid <laughs> comes over, and he says, Shai, only you can save my life. I'm going to ask you a question, and you, you, you have to give me an honest answer. So will you give me an honest answer? Yeah, of course. I'll give an honest answer. So I'm telling the story the way I heard it. He says to this Shaya, tell me, Shaya, do you love your wife? Now, nowadays, these are things people talk about publicly. But in those days, people didn't talk about these things privately. Soon right, but they said it was full of people. But Reb asks, Shaya, do you love your wife? So he says, says yes, Reb, I do. I do. So Reb claps his hands. He's so satisfied to hear this. So he says, tell me, Shaya. He says, do you ever tell your wife a secret? Now, at this point, I should just mention a fact that, as I said, this Shia was very, very tall, but his wife was very, very short. Let's keep that in mind. So he says, Do you ever tell your wife a secret? So he says, Yes, sir, I do. So he says, Shia, how do you tell her a secret? I whisper in her ear. You whisper in her ear? How do you whisper in her ear? She's so. You're so tall, she's so short. How could you whisper? So he says, Rebbe, he says, I bend over and I whisper in her ear. So the Rebbe says, Is that it? Is that it? And he thinks for a second. He says, he says, Well, I also ask her to stand on her toes. Because even bending over, he wouldn't reach her ear. So if she stands on her toes and he bends over, he can whisper in her ear. And the Rebbe is beaming with joy, and he turns to the menorah and writes, lights the Hanukkah licht. And the, the, the hislavos, the enthusiasm, the, the passion was, every year was great, but that particular year was something extraordinary. And of course, no one had the nerve to ask the Rebbe what the meaning of this conversation was. Until after a little bit, they just couldn't hold it in anymore, and they had to find out what is the meaning of this bizarre conversation. So uh, some of the Hasidim went to the Rebbe and asked the Rebbe for an explanation. He said like this. 
He said, when I came, and this relates to everything we said before, said, when I came in, and I was about to write the Hanukkah Licht, I said to myself, the Rebbeinu Shlalem is so great, he's so lofty, and I'm so low and so insignificant. He says, what pleasure, what nachas ruach, could the Yubanish Leilam have from my Hanukkah? And the more I thought about that, the lower I felt, and I ultimately reached the point where I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Imagine that. And then I thought of Shia. Shia is so tall. Life is so short. But if you love somebody, you're willing to lower yourself to share with that person. Just like uh, Shia, he bends over to share intimate secrets with his wife because he loves her. And he only asks one little thing that she should stand on her toes and make herself a little taller. And so it is with Yuvon But We all have to know that Yuvon loves each and every one of us. And sometimes we also fall into that same type of despair. And we, we, we tell ourselves, we delude ourselves into thinking, what satisfaction, what nachas ruach, could the Rebbeinu Leilam have from my davening, from my learning, from my mitzvahs, from everything that I do. And when we begin to think about those thoughts, we become more depressed, more dejected, more disillusioned, and more apathetic. We have to remember that the things we do are important to Rebbeinu Leilam because he loves us. And he lowers himself. And in one version of the story, he brings this out in a very interesting way. The Gemara says that there are two zones. There's the earthly zone and the heavenly zone. And the boundary is ten tfachim high. So it says Moshe and Leo never went above. When they went up to Shemayim, they still remained within ten tfachim of the ground. And the Gaudi Baruch never descended below. But it's interesting that by Ner Hanukkah, the Gemara says... That Lachatchila is supposed to like near Hanukkah below 10th Because Hanukkah, the Shechina descends even below, even into the earthly zone, which is our zone, 10th Vachim down, the Rebbeinu descends here. And all he asks of us is that we should stand on our toes and make ourselves a little bit higher. And that, I think, is uh, the lesson that. Uh, I think we can take out of, of Hanukkah. So it's Hanukkah. This is the end. This is our last opportunity to soak up the lessons of Hanukkah. Which is that, that this is important to the We have an opportunity to give him tremendous satisfaction. And he takes pleasure. If you learn a Pasuk, you learn a Mishnah, you learn a line of a Gemara, you daven a tefillah, you say a bracha with concentration and thought, you do a mitzvah. Joy. You sing a nigger. Singing a nigger is a whole different 
talk. But, but everything we do, just make yourself a little higher. Stand on your toes a little bit. And the Yavashim will bend over because he cares. Loves you very much. Yes, I